Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, uh, coming at you this week with my wife, uh, Melissa. Hello. <laughs> so uh, this is brought to you as usual on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. And um, this has been, this podcast almost didn't happen a couple times. Uh, my guest for the week canceled out at the last minute, and I uh, did not, uh, stupidly, did not prepare an alternative, and I am not the kind of person who has a spare podcast in his pocket waiting for such an instance, which I, I really should be. I have in the past, but, um, but this week, no. So here we are, and I have some things to talk about. It's, this, isn't, this isn't just ran, totally rando. Um, and I wanted Melissa with me because she can help sometimes... Um, well, I, 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 you know, I don't want to go on and on and on here, but she uh, and I have long discussions often, and I always rue not having a camera sometimes because <laughs> some of the stuff we talk about is so interesting. This happens with some of my friends, too. I'll have phone conversations where at the end of the phone call, I'm like, damn it, I wish I had recorded that because that was a great podcast. <laughs> Yeah, just the conversation that we have, whether it was about, you know, government or guns or Scientology or cults or thinking or critical thinking or whatever it is. It's just sometimes you just have those really meaningful conversations. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not something you can just kind of make happen. It just sort of happens. But when it does, um, it's really fun and it's really cool. So Anyway, I want to talk about a few things, but I have Melissa on here because I think that she might be able to help me um, prompt me or, or contribute to the conversation. Certainly, that's the other half of the reason I have her on here is because she's also <laughs> just such a smart, wonderful person. <laughs> so, uh, and I just can't put her in front of you guys enough, so... <laughs> Um, okay, so let's get to what we're going to talk about here. Um, this has been a tumultuous week for me, personally, and this is going to be a podcast about me and some of my recovery, um, you know, acclimation struggles, I guess I will say. Um, this whole channel has been about that from the beginning, so it's, you know, it's not like this is, this is directly on topic for, for what my channel's all about. And, um, and it's very personal. We're going to get into some personal stuff this week. So let's just go ahead and get into it. The tumultuousness uh, has actually been going on for a while. And it's been off and on, you know, here and there. And uh, we all have our ups and downs in life. And I'm not trying to set myself apart as somebody who's special and different and unique from the rest of the human race and the experiences that I'm having right now. It's just they're kind of new for me. <laughs> um, and six years out of Scientology, you know, as I've mentioned many, many times, it is amazing the, 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 the way that this, this thing that I have been calling recovery from occult experience from my, my 27 years in Scientology, um, how it rolls out. And there's an analogy that is often made, which I think I've talked about before, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to lay it out for you guys here. And that is the analogy of, of the onion 
skin uh, layers, right, of, of recovery. You, you know, you, when, you, when you're in a destructive cult situation, you are building up walls around yourself, around your personality. Walls of, of the cult leader's personality and influence on you and how you need to be more like that person or those people, if it's a group of people. Um, how, you know, walls of security and safety of, of, of having to guard yourself uh, against certain things or certain precautions you have to take. And then just layers and layers of thinking, of, of, of bias, of ways of thinking about things based on the cult teachings. And this is, again, this would be true for any group, but in a cult, it's such a concentrated, extreme effort that's made with indoctrination. It's not just teaching, it's indoctrination. It's, you know, it's not just, you know, a group of people getting together to have some fun. It's very serious. And specifically, mm -hmm. bringing us to the topic of the, the main theme of the podcast, I think, this week, which is saving the planet. This idea that what you're doing with this group is so vital, so important, so all-consuming, and so needful of all your time and all your energy and all your resources because you are saving the world. <laughs> and this has been something that I, through conversations and, and, and looking and, and thinking about this with, with, uh, with my family and friends, um, it's become clear to me that, that this, this saving the world thing was not something that I always had in my mind. You know, and, and for a long time, I thought it was. I thought, oh, ever since I was born, I've always wanted to save the world. Mm -hmm. And now, if I take an honest look at my childhood. Yeah, and yeah. My... you weren't trying to do that when you were five. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or my teen years, right? And maybe in a way, this was me. Um, you know, in terms of these onion skin layers, the thing that I was explaining a minute ago, uh, you know, you build these things up and then... When you come out of the group or the cult or whatever, I'm doing the watermelon thing here now. I love this. If you could see, if, if you're watching me on video, you can see my hand sitting there doing the the, <laughs> the, the, the onion watermelon thing uh, that I'm always joking about. Um, you, when you come out of the cult situation, you start stripping off these layers, but they come off. The reason the onion is such an apt analogy is because. The, the top layer comes off. That's the stuff you're aware of right when you get out of the cult. All the mm -hmm. crazy stuff or the physical violence or the disconnection or the stuff that, you know, all that. That's the stuff that comes off first. That's the surface layer stuff. That's easy to get off. Anybody can see that, you know, some of that stuff is like really, really hard uh, to deal with or to to, to, to want to put up with or anything, right? Like, so like disconnection, for example. You know, you, you come out of a cult and you're like, what was I thinking? Disconnection is insane. That's, you know, the shunning, that's crazy. Uh, and you shed that layer. And there's a, now you no longer feel that disconnection or shunning is, is, a, is, is, you know, is a tough love situation that you need to be part of. You realize that what you're actually doing is victimizing people and yourself. Yeah. And you're denying yourself and them, uh, you know, the connection, your connection. And, and if there is anything that makes life worth living... It is our connections oh, with yeah. one another. We're social know? animals. Exactly. It is literally built into us. Mm -hmm. It is not an option to be nope. social. So, um, you know, how we go about that, of course, is, you know. Yeah, that's up to us. Up but... and down. But, but the fact of having to be social, you know, the no man is an island thing, that's very, very true. So anyway, 
more and more layers come off. And you start thinking after a while of this, and I have shared with you guys almost all of the significant milestones along the way over the last six years, and there have been some real doozies, some real big ones. Stuff I didn't see coming, stuff I didn't know was there to be uncovered. But you don't know about it. You can't see through the onion, you see. You can only see the next layer. And that comes off, and then there's another one, and then that comes off, and then there's another one. And, and after a while, these layers start becoming so deep, so much a part of who you are, that you don't easily differentiate. It's not so obvious. It's not like the shunning thing or the physical violence stuff or the stuff that's a lot more easy to come to a realization that that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. That's bad. You know, working five straight days, you know, or, or getting four hours sleep a night for three years, that, that, that was probably not a good idea, yeah. you know. But this stuff, the, some of the stuff that's hitting me now, is much more personal, much deeper, and much harder to spot. And um, and so one of the things that's come up now is this: it, it was the saving the world thing, but at a deeper level than I have previously looked at or experienced it. And I'll explain what I mean by this. Um, and this gets into um, this is going to have. I'm going to have to talk about biases and prejudices and implicit biases, like the the kind you don't know you have. They're so deep, right? Mm. You were indoctrinated so young or so thoroughly or it's been or or hypnotized or right, however right. it was put there. You know, there there are ideas that we have that we pick up from somewhere along the way. And sometimes they can get so buried that we are no longer consciously aware of the fact that we think certain thoughts. They're just always there. Seem natural. Yes. It's just, it's just totally natural. Like, you don't have to go out of your way mm -hmm. to think this way. You don't have to remind yourself to think this way. You never have to have a post-it note right. to think of whatever these deep, deep implicit biases are. And I call them biases because they are a filter on how, uh, for me, as I'll explain, a filter for everything I was seeing and hearing and looking at in the world. Everything was going through this filter and everything was going out through this filter. And I didn't even know it because it seemed so much a part of me. And that particular, it's, it's like I, I, I realized that a, a, a definition for a prejudice or a bias that might work um, is the thoughts that you have to have. You, you don't have a choice. In the matter, it's like you know, it's like I've gone over. We, you know, we've talked about free will. I've done right, a whole right. podcast on it. There's all kinds of things going on in your head that you have no choice or control over oh, at yeah. all. And if you don't believe that, when was the last time a song got stuck in your head, and how long exactly. was it stuck there, right? Once it's there, it just stays there until oh my another God. one comes along. That's right. <laughs> or you know what I have to do? I have to go listen to the actual song uh -huh, all uh -huh, the way through. Uh -huh. And then, of course, within an hour, another one's going. I mean, there's yep, one going yep. in my head right now. It's always stuff going on up there, right? Uh, and you don't have a say in all the things that are going on up here. And biases and prejudices are some of those, are a couple of those things. And, and I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when they talk about or complain about or are, act, you know, being activists about, say, racial prejudice or gender prejudice or whatever kind of prejudice or bias people have is they actually seem to think that 
it's a choice this person's making <laughs> about whether they're going to have those kind of thoughts. And when somebody's truly prejudiced, true, I mean, really, what, like we're talking yeah, about yeah. a real bias now, not just some off-the-cuff opinion or random idea they have or awful thought they're having. I'm talking about, like, this filtering process, this kind of thought that occurs to them that they never even have to think about to have it. When those thoughts have to do with racial hatred or prejudice mm -hmm. or uh, any kind of, you know, uh, hatred, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, Right? Those, those things exist at a very, very deep level. Uh, so much so that the person themselves has built up their own onion layers of rationalizations and justifications for that bias. But the bias is the thing that's buried deep, deep, deep down inside mm -hmm. there. And what you experience when you talk to a racist or a misogynist or a sexist or whatever is all the onion layers. The, just the mm -hmm. surface stuff that they've built up over that to justify thinking that way. Because they have to justify it because they can't help but think that way. Whether it was a minister or a parent or a teacher or somebody who instilled that idea in them somehow or a friend or a circumstance. You know, there's lots and lots and lots of ways that we adopt ideas and then take them and, and you know, and hold on to them and start operating on them. And I think the implicit biases are the ones that pretty much get installed like early on oh, yeah, in our life. Very young and but I know for sure that that's not the only way it can happen. It's not like, you know, when you're 30 years old, you're, you're immune from getting Right, yeah, you, know, you can still be, can <laughs> you, still be and, manipulated. That's right. <laughs> and you can be manipulated into, you know, these various things. So, you know, so I just wanted to point out that it's not necessarily as voluntary or, or under one's control as one might like to think. And I had a, a, a real encounter with this for myself this week with the saving the world thing. So let me get to that. What happened was I, I've known for quite some time coming out of Scientology that the world ain't going to be saved by any one of us. Uh, I, you know, the term itself is kind of ridiculous, saving the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, like George Carlin said, the world ain't going anywhere. Right. Right? We are. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. So if anything, you want to talk about saving the human race. You don't want to talk about saving the world because the world is not the human race. There are right. millions of species of life on this planet who couldn't care less about us. Don't ever give mm -hmm. us a passing thought in their entire life. Uh, so we're not the world, right? But we like to think we are. Mm -hmm. So so saving the world, even as a euphemism, is a kind of a silly one. Um, but... <laughs> even consciously stripping off those layers, as I've been doing all these years, and seeing that saving the world was a silly idea and not something that was practical or real or, or at all something that I was, you know, ever going to be able to pull off, um, I still felt with every single thought that I had, and this is what I was talking about with the bias, because it's not just a, a, a nice idea I was having. Every thought, every idea, every decision I was making was being filtered through this idea of, is what I'm about to say, do, think, you know, put together for a podcast, whatever, going to, what kind of social impact will this have? I don't mean social blowback. I mean good. I mean, what kind of social good am I going to be doing with this or or could I do? 
And if I don't accomplish social change of some significant kind, then I'm a failure. I'm not getting the job done that I'm supposed to be getting done. And this has been an underlying motivation in my head for a very, very long time. Uh, this goes back to definitely my recruitment into Scientology, my indoctrination in Scientology. I absolutely remember when these things uh, happened, uh, you know, uh, when they were kind of installed, I guess you could say, because going into Scientology as a 15-year-old, I did not have these ideas. And even after being on courses and doing training and doing a purification rundown by the time I was 17 years old, uh, I still had a career path in mind that did not involve anything about saving the world. <laughs> and it was the staff recruitment cycle, I guess I'll call it, or the conversations that were had while I was being recruited for staff where this really started being drilled into me. And it was drilled into me by people who, whose opinion mattered to me, whose, whose opinions about me and the material they were going over were important as far as I was concerned. I granted these people a lot of importance. The, I granted L. Ron Hubbard's words a lot of weight. And I was also in a situation where I was in a closed room being recruited very heavily. And, and it really impinged on me, as that's the word, I, that's kind of a Scientology use of that word, but it really hit me. I mean, it really did. Um, and it wasn't just a one-time deal, it was going, it went on, on and on and on for days. And you go, okay, fine, it's cult recruitment, get it, you know, it's really intense, it's really wild, and, and we get it. Um, but what I didn't get, and what I don't know that, that, you know, that I've talked about or that has really been understood, is just how deep into your personality or your being, your, who you are, this indoctrination can go. Because even years after coming out of Scientology, recognizing it's all bullshit, laughing about Xenu, ridiculing the beliefs, deconstructing the belief system and the techniques for you guys and for myself along the way, all of this work, very cathartic, all of that being done, still didn't show me this, this root bias. And, this, and the reason I keep talking about it that way is because I kept holding on myself this standard, this impossible standard. Um, you know, the bar was way up here, right? I put my hand up high, right? Like, I could never meet that standard. I could never meet that goal of, you know, vast improvements in society, vast mm. improvements in social, you know, discourse or right. whatever, right? And because I couldn't do that with my little show here and my channel, right, which I, I, I love you guys. I love what I do. I really do. I, I am so thankful for the opportunity to do what I'm doing and that you guys care enough to listen to what I'm saying. Um, but I was marginalizing, you know, sort of just kind of pushing off to the side positive feedback, comments, and most importantly, the, all the help that I have been doing for individual people over the years. And there has been a lot of people, and I know this through emails, through direct conversations, through, you know, phone calls with one-on-one -on -one individuals who have helped out of cult situations, helped them because they were family of cult members, helped people just because I'm just kind of talking to people and helping them out with whatever, 
you know, former cult members helping them on their recovery. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff with all of that. And this isn't about tooting my horn. This is about the fact that I couldn't appreciate what I was doing or give any sort of importance to what I was doing really because it wasn't saving the world. It wasn't making vast change, right, right through the world. And this, and the, and the place that this hit me the other day, and it wasn't just yesterday. It was, it was about a week or two ago, was when I was on Twitter, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't, I, I, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm fairly political on Twitter. You know, I tweet out stuff about politics and mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, other critics of Scientology, other ex-members, you know, don't really get into that too much. Atheists do a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. The atheist community is all about politics. They love it, yeah. The ex-Scientology world, the ex-cult community is not. Generally speaking, mm -hmm. we don't talk about politics at all. Yeah. So it's pretty weird that I'm out on Twitter, like, you know, grandstanding about politics all the time. But I feel compelled to do so because of how I feel about our current administration. So... Be that as it may, right? You don't have to hate me for that. It's just me, you know, just kind of mouthing off. Um, I ha caught myself in something that I had not caught myself in. And that was, I was, I was sending out tweets and I was talking to Bama and da-da-da, building up my following. And I thought to myself, I've got to do more because I don't, I can't let 2016 repeat itself. And if you think about me telling myself that yeah, for just a second, <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And it was the first time that I had that thought, which where I was immediately followed up with, "What are you talking about, Chris?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I finally had enough self-awareness, you know, to go, "Wait a second. I, you know, I, I have a nice Twitter following and I have a nice subscriber base and you guys are awesome. You really are. But you're not enough people to change the whole society. You know, I'm not, not reaching that many people. I'm not at that level. And I don't know that I'm ever going to be. And putting myself constantly against that standard, it was not, it, it wasn't just a matter of having a nice goal or having a, you know, a, a thing to reach for. It was that I was actually kidding myself that I was capable of pulling off vast social change through some social media activity or through podcasting or through right, videos right. or something. And that's so far away from, I mean, it finally hit me, right? Like that's so far off of reality that it's, that it's kind of delusional. And I don't mean to say that I was crazy. I just mean that I had this, this bias, this fixed idea in my head, this thought that I couldn't not think, right? I had to think it, which was what's the social relevance and importance and, and what's the effect going to be of, of what I'm doing? And if it's not big and if it's not whatever, then it's just not good enough. And I'm not good enough. And the help I'm giving people isn't good enough. And the, and the, and the, 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 the real, substantive, tangible assistance that I render to people, eh, it's just not good enough. You know, and I, and I don't mean to say all of this as though I'm going to go, you know, quit everything and rest right, on my laurels right. now or something. It's not, it's, it's, it, 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 if anything, it was very clarifying. And, it, and, it, and it, it suddenly became very clear 
this week with, with a lot of ups and downs, and still having a lot of ups and downs about this, to be completely honest with you guys, um, of getting over this idea. Um, it's, you know, when you... <laughs> when you're a teenager, I've, I'm, I've read that there is a phase you go through. I wanted to ask you about this. Okay. You know, I read that there's a phase that people go through as, as late teens, early 20s of the messianic phase, right? This is one of the reasons why young people are so susceptible to joining cults. One, they're inexperienced. Two, mm -hmm. they don't know how inexperienced they are. Three, right. they think they're smart. They're ignorant and they're not, right? <laughs> they, they don't, I mean, I don't care how much knowledge you have crammed in your cranium. Mm -hmm. When you're 18 years old, you ain't got the life experience to figure out what's important and what's not right, in all right. situations. You know, you might be really good in one or two areas, but you got a lot of learning to do. 18 years isn't that long. So, uh, and you can be way easier to take advantage of people in yeah. that phase. But there's also, in addition to all those problems, there's also just this kind of phase that, that teens tend to go through of feeling like they're, you know, saving the world's a thing to do, oh, making yeah. a big difference. I'm going to make an impact on the world, you know? Yeah. And they then, you know, join the Peace Corps, join the military, do this, do that. And there's lots and lots of reasons for this. I'm not saying that this is the only reason people do any of these things, but it's there. And of course, cults will fan the flames oh, sure. of that for their own the advantage. <laughs> yeah, military does too, right? Just to their own advantage. Mm -hmm. um, so this filter has been in place all this time, I guess I could say. And now I'm examining it. And it was a, I cannot even tell you. It's hard to describe. When you recognize something like that is there and you start questioning it, it becomes a moral problem for me. It was a moral problem. It was an ethical problem for me to even question this. It was, it was so firmly entrenched in my, in my head as the one and only right way to operate in life that even questioning the validity of it was like a, oh my God, am I, am I wrong? Am I evil? Am I, is there something wrong with, should I even be, you know, like there are all these doubts and started coming up. And I had to first overcome an ethical boundary, an ethical question, a problem, right? Which was, is it even right for me to, to, to question this? I mean, this is just something I accepted so hard mm -hmm. so long ago and I've been operating on for so long. Is there any other way to, to, to be in the world? Than to be this way, and this, and I think that's also one of those kind of questions you can ask yourself sometimes. Maybe at least for me, is like challenging these biases yeah, consist yeah. of really honestly introspecting on mm -hmm. what motivates you and um, what 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 drives you, you know, and and is what's driving you a, a, a rational thing, or maybe in my case, exactly, you know, certainly it was not a rational thing. Because, uh, you know, it's just not, it's not doable, it's not realistic, it's not something I'm ever going to pull off. Uh, and it's not even a goal that, that is uh, worth pursuing, so to speak, you know. And I want to be really clear about this. I'm not saying that trying to help people is not a goal worth pursuing. 
that trying to make a better world's not a, not a, not a, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. It's this idea of saving the world, big air quotes, huge air quotes, right? Yeah. Saving the world. I gotta save the world. As though there's some, like, disastrous situation. Right. Everything's going bad. Everything's going yeah, wrong. Yeah, nothing's good, yeah. All these things are happening that are horrible and awful, and they're going to lead to the doom of the human race. And somehow, well, somewhere... <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, sure. You know, da, 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 I will bear my breast, and I will be out there, and I will, <laughs> I will pull off the heroic effort, right? Um, yeah. Right? I'm not Captain America. No. Nope. Right? So that that's not how this goes. Uh, Captain America isn't Captain America. I mean, it's like we build up these icons, and we should have icons, and we should have heroes. And don't, you know, I, I, again, I, I keep putting these little conditionals and, and you know, re- qualifying remarks out there because I don't want to be misinterpreted on this. I don't want anybody thinking that I, I suddenly don't care about the world or something anymore. It's, it's that to be, obs- okay, here's the best way I can put it. To be obsessive about it. Right, right. Or compulsive about it. That can't be right. Yeah. Right? That can't be right. Uh, I don't think that... Um, I don't think that being obsessive or compulsive about much of anything can be... No, it's not good. ...can be very that. right. You know, that's that, that the words themselves imply a, 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 a problem. A problem. Yes, exactly. So, um, so this has been, you know, this has been deconstructing in, in my head for a while now. And, um, and like I said, it's, it's really affected a lot of decision making. It's affected a lot of uh, goal making for my life. It's affected how I look at the world. It's affected how I analyze things. It's all been through a filter of, is this person doing any good for the world or not? Maybe I should give them the Kardashian example. Yeah. You know, I hate the Kardashians. I really do. I just, I, I, I've always resented them. Um, I have always resented the fact that they are are so wealthy, uh, seemingly on doing nothing yeah, of any they're real. Famous for being famous. Yeah, I mean, I. It's like it's like they're about as close to American royalty as you mm-hmm. get, right? And I've had a very, you know, sort of those people, those Kardashians. Well, after I kind of looked at them without this sort of filter or bias in place, so strongly at least, um, it occurred to me that, you know, if you can really look at the Kardashians, one, nobody's forcing anybody to buy their products or or watch their TV shows. They're not a cult. They're a family of people who are just kind of riding the wave of what they're doing, and they're being very successful at it. But two, and this was more important, they do have charities. They, I mean, if you go look, there are charities, there are things they do to, you know, to do give back to the community and all that. I'm not being a Kardashian defender right now. I, I just am not down with any of that. But if I'm going to be really honest, I can't say they don't do anything for society. That's simply not true. They do. There are charities, there are trusts, there are funds, there are things that they have done to reinvest. And if I am critical of the Kardashians because they're not socially conscious or responsible to my standard of what that should look like... Then, yeah, they got to do what I think. Yeah, exactly. And I had, and I was talking. We were talking the other night, and I said, um, you know, if they 
changed all their branding and changed all of what they were doing to focus entirely on saving the world, how long would they retain their popularity? How long would they maintain what they're doing? Probably not for as long as what they're, you know, as what is working for them. And if they were to change that and drop everything and change everything to become more whatever, I, however I feel they should be, that would probably tank all those charities and work that they are doing, the contribution that they are making. And maybe they could contribute more. In fact, I'm sure they could. Maybe there's all kinds of things they could be doing with their time that might be more helpful than what they're doing. It's not totally the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that I had this harsh, antagonistic, very critical view of them, which was only founded on the fact that I was looking at everything they were doing through this filter of, well, I'm socially responsible, and they're not. So fuck the Kardashians, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's pretty... That's pretty judgmental for me, you know. That's that's pretty non-objective for me. That's pretty harsh, and uh, and it's just not, you know, the the way I want to be, uh, amongst many other things. So I started seeing that I that this how this had affected my worldview, you know. And if and, and that's the thing about these things is if you think you you know that this stuff doesn't affect everything you think, everything you do. I mean, of course it does. Oh, yeah. You know? And, it was, and it's, it's hard to look at this stuff. It is hard to dig in and do this. It's hard to, you know, be your own therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, know, you shouldn't have to be. No, I shouldn't. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. This, is, this is the world we live in. Um, okay. So those were some things I wanted to talk about on this. Now, the other thing that I wanted to... I, I kind of wanted to use this podcast also to throw some other ideas out there, too. There's a, there's a theme here with the saving the world thing, but there's also some other things that I thought were kind of interesting, Scientology-related, that I thought you guys might find kind of interesting, too. Hey, everyone. Having the right answers is so satisfying. Whether it's solving a problem at work or exchanging trivia with friends, I have a great idea for you. It's called The Great Courses Plus and it's a priceless source of knowledge in just about any field. This streaming service offers thousands of lectures. You can explore everything from the fallacies of faulty authority to the Darwinian revolution, from the art of negotiating to playing chess and cooking. With reliable, in-depth information from professors and experts who have won awards for their ability to teach, they have unique perspectives you never even thought about. And that is the key to critical thinking. Because no matter how much or how long you think about something, you can always learn or hit on things you never thought of when you hear what someone else has to say about it. Especially someone who knows what they're talking about. I recommend checking out their course, Theories of Knowledge, How to Think About What You Know. With this course, you get a really interesting look at what knowledge truly is, how we acquire it, and how we justify our beliefs. This, of course, goes hand in glove with how people buy into cults or high control groups, and understanding how this works can save you from a lot of future heartache and trouble. I wish someone had given me this knowledge when I was still a teen. So here's the special limited time offer for you guys on this a full free month of unlimited access. 
but you must sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Um, first off is um, somebody asked me one time, and I didn't take it up in my Q&A show, about um, stages of grief or stages of loss, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and where am I at and where are other people at and all that. And I looked this up, and actually it turns out that these five stages were not really developed in order to be used that way exactly. Right, you don't go in any order. Precisely. It's you not just, a matter of one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, you kind of go back and forth. You. That's right. You know, you might be more prone to one than the other. Exactly. And really, it was. It, now, the whole thing came out of the work of a woman who had done uh, a whole bunch of study with terminally ill mm-hmm, patients mm-hmm. and how they dealt with the news and condition that they were now finding themselves in. And that's where these five stages came from. And you guys probably know all about this. I, I didn't. So I looked it all up, and this is what I found. Uh, so it's not a matter with the stages of loss of saying, which one are you in, as though there's a progression of mm-hmm. them. Um, with, and, and I mean that in terms of with loss or grief. With a terminal illness, you know, this might have more... More, it may, might make more sense in terms of a, a one, two, three, four, five kind of thing, and that's kind of how their work was originally presented. So when I looked at them, I thought, well, yeah, I, I had a hard time actually trying to figure out which one I was in. And after I read that, it made sense because I went, oh yeah, because I bounce around these yeah, yeah. all the time, you know. Um, but one of the things that sort of has become apparent uh, over this time is that. Um, one of the one of the driving forces for me uh, over the years in talking about this Scientology and cults in general has been my anger towards Scientology, towards uh, cults in general, towards what they do to people, what they did to me, specifically, of course. That's the most personal. And over these last six years, that anger has really... Well, the cath- let's just say that the catharsis of this channel has helped you know, sort of bring the levels down quite a bit. I am still, uh, I can still get, you know, pretty pissed off about some of the shenanigans that Scientology and some of these cults get up to. But it's not personal for me anymore, the same way it used to be. Um, I still feel very, uh, I guess the word's offended, Uh uh, pissed off, you know, I think, um, about what has been done in my direction you know, in speaking out about this stuff, you know, the hate website and stuff. I mean, how am I supposed to feel about that? Bored? No. I, I, you know, it's, it, it makes me mad. Um, you know, you, you lose things because of that. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, you, you know, that's out there for people to see, and now they're going to think things about you that are based on total lies. Right. That, opinions. And yeah, I'm not happy about that. Turn away from you and stuff it's, like that. Exactly. I don't want people out there thinking I'm some deadbeat this and that yeah, and the other yeah, thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's pretty screwed up. Uh, I, you know, I can't really do a whole lot about that uh, <laughs> right now. It's out there and, and I, and I, you know, I have to deal with that. Um, the past is the past, of course. I've, you know, been dealing with that. 
Um, but the, you know, but, but I think, I, I think I, I want to, what I'm trying to get across is the, like the inner anger, like the, you know, every time I think about it, you know, that's, you know, pretty much chilled. And, um, and I think that's a good thing, but unfortunately, and again, I'm just going to be totally honest with you guys here. Um, there's some depression and that comes from still dealing with the loss of, of some of these ideals and some of these um, goals, not the saving the world thing, but you know some of the other beliefs and ideas. I'm still still struggling with, you know, um, and not finding, you know, adequate answers in the real world for mm-hmm, some of these mm-hmm. things ain't really helping. <laughs> you yeah, know, the real world is not as as nice as religions and cults wanted to, you know. That's Black right. and white and that's right. Easy. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, the thing one of the things that one of the one of the probably one of the selling points, one of the appeals of religion is that it does simplify things. It clarifies, you know, mm-hmm, and again the outcome mm-hmm. the air quotes, right? But it kind of clarifies or simplifies the world for you. And after six years of acclimating to the real world, which I am now fully, I'm, I'm really out of the Scientology mindset now. I have to think in order to get into, you know, how Scientologists think. I have to think about the terminology to bring it up, you know, to mind now. It's not, it doesn't just come all automatically anymore. These are good things. Uh, <laughs> but the simplicity of the worldview of Scientology is something that, to be completely honest with you, I kind of miss. Um, because there were answers there. Mm-hmm. And now there aren't. Right. And I get it why people hold on to that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I totally get it. Because I, it's harder. It's more difficult. It's sometimes even grueling. Dealing with the ups and downs and struggles of life without that safety net. Yeah. Or without that anchor. It's definitely difficult. You know? Yeah. Because think, you don't have some, yeah. like, person watching over you all the time who's going to see that everything's going to mm-hmm. be okay for mm-hmm. you. You know? That's a joke. And uh, you don't have, oh, well, you're an immortal spiritual being, and so, you know, mm-hmm. this body will die, and you'll go get another one. Yeah. Don't have that either. So... <laughs> You know, so, and, and I, I'm not the person who's going to just fall into belief uh, anymore again. Not, not just for the sake of comfort. I, I can't lie to myself. Right. You know, and, and I don't mean to suggest that everybody else is lying to themselves. I know that people, there are believers out there who really honestly believe oh, yeah. what they believe. Good on you. Great. I, you know, I hope it all works out for you. I can't go there because I ha- struggle with this idea of facts and evidence. And so that has been a struggle for me, to be totally honest, again, because um, the simple answer is so much more seductive, right. inviting, easy to accept. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it takes all your worries away if you can mm-hmm. really believe it. You know, I mean... Heaven, woohoo! You know, or a spiritual afterlife, or we're all one thing, or whatever the idea is, is more comfortable than the harsh, cold, you know, reality that 
you know, we're just another animal and when we die, we die, you know. But I think you come to terms with that eventually and I think you can realize that this, the, the, the thing about that is like, you realize this is the only life I have, so I gotta make the best of it. And that's a good thing to have that attitude because then you're not waiting for something after you die, you're not hoping that, you know, some magical being is gonna come down and fix everything for you. You're like, no, I gotta do this. And that's a powerful place to be in. Uh, and I agree with that. Yeah, I do. And I've and I've and I've seen that. I've been there. Mm -hmm. I've definitely had that idea. It has been invigorating. It has been helpful. Yeah. Um, it's not all doom and gloom. You know what I mean? I'm not talking when I talk about depression. I'm not talking about like you know major depressive episodes and oh my god and you know all of that. I, that's not that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ups and downs of mm -hmm. dealing with these kind of realities and questions, and coming from a place of faith or belief, which is what Scientology is, just like any other, you know, religion out there, or, you know, religious cult, um, to questioning everything and not being willing to fall back into a trap again of belief or prison of belief, because those are so easy to fall into. And the more I've learned about critical thinking and the more I've learned about thinking in general and people in general and the more I've acclimated to the world in general, the more clear it's become to me that, that, there, that in no areas, uh, when it comes to human behavior and relationships, are there simple answers. Nope. There just aren't. <laughs> and we constantly, you know, are trying to simplify things. We're constantly oh, yeah. trying to bring things down to a simplicity. What's the, why, why did yeah. he do that? What's the why? easiest thing, the easiest answer, you know? Right, as though there's one answer. Right. You know, for why somebody does something, and there isn't. There's mm. a there's a panoply of reasons behind every single decision you ever make, uh, behind every action you take. Mm -hmm. You know, every step you take, <laughs> every move you make. Yeah. You know, it's just there's a we are complicated, man. There's a lot going on with us, and if you want to start figuring that all out then you quickly find out how limited our knowledge is mm -hmm. when it comes to determining what these things are. We've now got an anatomy of, uh, of how we act and, and, and basically the factors that contribute to why we act that way. But, get, you know, but then you find out that in, you know, you say, go, okay, great, neuroscience, brains, let's go biochemical on mm -hmm. this, let's look at that. So you go digging into neurons and brains and, and different parts of the brain and you go, okay, you got the, you know, the medulla oblongata and the hippocampus and the, you know, the this and the that and the yeah. hypothalamus. It's all about the hypothalamus and fear, you know, fight or flight and all that and the frontal lobes. And you get into all these different parts and pieces and what they're doing and you come to find out that we don't, you know, there's, yeah, these, don't th know. Well, there's these things called neurotransmitters, right? Which are the things that actually like make connections happen in the brain. Well, guess what? We don't even have names for all the neurotransmitters that we know about that are in there or that we suspect are in there. Like, we're that far off from having this thing all nailed down, right? That's just one example. There's, there's many. You know, for everything we know, there's a hundred things we don't know. Mm -hmm. And we're at a place in our history, I think, where we are, I think, for the first time ever, we're at a place where we can see our potential more than we've ever seen it before. We can see what we could be and we're striving to achieve that. And yet, just because we can see it doesn't mean we can be it. 
You know, we're not there. We haven't bridged the gap between those potentials and what we're where we're at because we don't have the actual minute, detailed information we need. We don't understand ourselves well enough, in other words, or the universe at large in general, to be able to affect the changes we want to affect. So we can see it, but you know, but we don't know how to get there. Right. And that is so frustrating. It's so frustrating, especially to go from a place where you had all the answers. You knew how it all worked. You had an answer for everything. I'm telling you, that is a really great place to be. I so understand why people just hold on to those beliefs. They just hold on to them, man. scary to let go of it and be in the unknown. It's terrifying. And it's frustrating, and it's upsetting, and it's and it's aggravating, and it's teeth gnashing sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I get, so I know why it's so hard for people. Um, it's hard for me, but I'd rather live with an uncomfortable truth mm-hmm. than you know a comfortable lie. Yep. And that's where my head's at on that. Okay, so um, so I wanted to kind of lay that out. I guess that we got into that from stages of grief. Um, so, yeah, anyway, so in terms of uh, stages of grief and all that, in terms of answering that question, um, you know, I'd say probably at this point I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, I'm hitting a little depression. Just, let's just put it that way. Um, oh, okay, now, whole nother subject. <laughs> Moving on here. Um, L. Ron Hubbard had a bit of a, had a bit of a, oh, moment uh, this week about this, and I had never heard anybody say this before, so I wanted to throw it out there as, as my own idea, and if somebody else has said this, then great. But um, L. Ron Hubbard, it's, uh, there's, often, it, there's often a question about, you know, why did he start Scientology as a religion? And we've always gone to, I've always gone to the tax exemption and the First Amendment protections that that affords the group, right? And I think those are very, very true. But there was some other motivation that occurred to me that I thought important enough to to mention here, which was we know from a letter that Hubbard sent to his wife, Polly, I think in 1929 or so, or somewhere around there, he's or in the 30s, he uh, sent her a letter talking about how he wanted to slam his name into history, into the history books. L. Ron Hubbard wanted to be remembered forever. And if you think about it, that is a form of immortality. In fact, it's mm-hmm. the only form of immortality that yeah, really that seems to, to exist. Figure out, yeah. That's right. And Melissa and I were talking the other night, and I and I realized, wait a second, um, who whose names do we remember for thousands of years? Who are the names that are on the tips of every single person's tongue all over the world? It's either Jesus, mm-hmm. Muhammad, Buddha, yep. uh, right? Abraham, Moses, spiritual leaders, religious leaders. Those are the names that we remember. It's either that or we remember the people who were the complete asshats, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The Neros, the Caesars, the Napoleons, right? Mm-hmm. The guys who, like, we know, you know, uh, Genghis Khan and and uh, all of the you know the Mongol hordes and all that, death, destruction, right? People who kill lots and lots mm-hmm. and lots of people. Mm-hmm. We remember them too. 
So that's another way to get your name slammed into the history books and always be remembered is go out and kill a whole bunch of people. But that's not at all what I would ever recommend anybody doing, obviously. <laughs> and it wasn't what L. Ron Hubbard wanted to do. But he, th but he knew, he commented in a lecture. And this is, how, this, this is where the dots connected for me. We have that letter where he said he wanted to slam his name into history books. We have the Church of Spiritual Technology with all the titanium plates and all the recordings on, you know, the, the gold records and all that of the people, of, of L. Ron Hubbard's works being stored in the mines and, and saved for an atomic explosion. So that whole activity is happening. And I felt that that was the uh, way that L. Ron Hubbard was slamming his name into history or into the history books. But there's also this other point, which was start a religion. I mean, it wasn't just, I've never bought that L. Ron Hubbard did all of Scientology on a bet. You know, these people are like, well, Elrond Hubbard said that, you know, he made a bet with Harlan Ellison that he could start a religion and make a bunch of money. That is not the only reason Elrond Hubbard started no. doing what he was doing. It was to make some money. He did make a lot of money with it, and he definitely saw the earning potential there. So I'm not saying it wasn't a motivating force. But I think uh, there was another, let me, let me connect another dot. There was another lecture Hubbard gave. I haven't looked it up, I don't remember which one it was, but he very clearly said that the only thing that gave him pause in doing Scientology and, and starting Scientology and getting this whole movement going was he said that in the past, all the people who have ever tried to do that to help their fellow man, in other words, ended up being killed by their fellow man <laughs> as a result. Now, it's not true. Not everybody who's tried to do that is, has died a grim and gory and horrible death. Uh, Jesus sure as hell did, though. Yeah. Right? I mean, if he existed at all, then, mm -hmm. you know, that was one of the worst ways I could think of to go, right? I mean, getting crucified? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, I, but I don't know that, I don't know how Muhammad died. I don't know either. I, don't, I never actually looked that up before mm -hmm. this. Um, I didn't grow up in any religion. I don't know these things. <laughs> no, but I think I think Moses uh, grew to a, a ripe old age, and some yeah, other, yeah, you know, these right. these you know these 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 big time religious leaders, right? Buddha didn't have a violent death, so not everybody has to get killed by their fellow man. But Hubbard commented on the fact that that's what gave him pause was every every time somebody in the past has tried to help his fellow man, they string him up, um, and so he knew enough of history and enough, you know, it was able to contextualize history well enough that I think he probably actually did have a little bit of a concern about starting a religious group and then having the whole group turn on him because it has happened many, many times. And he voiced those concerns. But I think that he had more, I think the thing that appealed to him more about it was the potential of growing a major religious movement and thereby also slamming his name into history. You see, so very long-winded explanation there for mm -hmm. a pretty simple idea that I had that I thought I've never heard anybody say that before. So I thought I would throw it out there as a another possible explanation for L. Ron Hubbard's behavior, especially given his uh, the fact that we thought he had uh, temporal lobe epilepsy right, TLE, right. which gives people over to deep religious thinking. Um, all these factors, all these dots, kind of connected for me on that, and so I thought that might be of interest to you guys. So, um, so I guess where I wanted to 
kind of wrap this up, mm -hmm. um, now that we've kind of blathered on for a while about different things, uh, that I hope you guys have found interesting and, um, you know, because it's, it's all part of my recovery process, all of this stuff is. And that is, again, what this channel was kind of created for in the first place. So if anything is kind of going back to essential roots <laughs> of what my channel even exists for is to talk to you guys about me. As exciting a topic as that, you know, <laughs> isn't. <laughs> Whatever. I know, I know. I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, you know, I, when I say stuff like that, I'm really not fishing for compliments. I really do feel like I'm really not that big of a deal. But um, I did send something out this morning that I thought was relevant, and I wanted to share it here. I put this out on Twitter, and Twitter is the, you know, it of the internet. I mean, it's it's got a life expectancy mm. of like a few minutes mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe a day if you're lucky. And this was something I didn't want to just commit to Twitter and then lose. Um, I, I think I posted on Facebook too, but I wanted to share it with all you guys. Okay, so uh, here we go. Being an extremist is easy. Adopt or believe in a cause or position and simply don't listen to any reason why you're wrong. Every time someone gives you a compelling reason to change your mind, just double down on your original idea. It's actually the path of least resistance to be an extremist. Critical thinking shows you the right and wrong of any argument. It's hard, and it's not as natural as just listening to your gut. We struggle to do it right because it takes time and energy we sometimes just don't have. So we go with the easier path of least resistance. The real gotcha of critical thinking, though, is that it's very difficult to keep hating someone when you can see that some of what they're saying is true and some of it isn't, but that most everyone is actually coming from a good place. In other words, most people are struggling to make ends meet, to get along in the world and with each other. Background, such as culture, religion, location, upbringing, etc., all those things, right? Background, friends and family, and current exposure to news drives pretty much all our thinking. I mean, if, uh, if there are other factors that filter into how you come to your decision-making than what I just laid out there, I'd, I'd be kind of interested. I, I think that's pretty expansive. The thin slice of our time we give to current events and what we should think about them has to get sandwiched in between picking up the groceries, dealing with the spouse and the kids, and making a little time for ourselves. Yep. It's not much. Far too little. It would be great if somehow that critical thinking perspective could be maintained, but none of us have time for that. So we just do the best we can do. I wish we could all remember that the world is a very complicated place and that most of our hate is based on ignorance. Compassion and tolerance are not synonyms for weakness, cowardice, or naivety. They are the building blocks of our society. Every time we randomly hate on others, we are doing our part to destroy our society. That's what it amounts to. So out of all this, I have just one final thing to ask you all to remember. I know it's asking a lot in these divisive times, but before sending off your next snarky tweet or post, or making some off-color remark about someone you don't even know, remember, it's chaos. Be kind. And with that, we're going to wrap up our show. All right. Thank you for helping me with You're this. You're welcome.
really appreciated you being here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and thank you guys for listening to this all the way through to the end and for your support and your well wishes and everything else and the opportunity that that you give me to help you. See you next week. Bye-bye.